Thank you for checking out our podcast here at St. Andrew's Ministries. Uh, these podcasts are just uh, what what has been laid on our heart, and we just want to get out, and uh, we hope that you enjoy. This is a, a uh, sermon that I did called There Will Be Revival, based on Joel chapter 2, verses 27 and 28. Hope you enjoy it. If you like what you hear, please subscribe. Check out our website at www.standrewsministries.org. Thank you. Hello, and thanks for coming to our page, and uh, thanks for listening to the the video, watching the videos, and I want to thank everybody who listens to our sermon and visits our website, standrewsministries.org, and uh, I just want to share with you a, a sermon that God has placed upon my heart, and I just want to just hopefully reach those who who this message needs to reach and I pray that we can do that and by your help by sharing these videos by telling your friends about our page you can help spread the word that is needed and so I'm going to start with the word of prayer Father we ask that you bless us as we hear the words of this sermon that are coming from you, Lord. It is not my words, but it's yours. Lord, speak through me. Let me be your mouthpiece as we listen and as I deliver this sermon, Lord, that it might be a blessing to those out there who who need this word today, Lord, in these perilous times that our nation is going through. We ask for anyone out there that is sick and afflicted, Lord, that you've just Bless them and heal them, Lord. And we we thank you for the healing that's going to happen and it's going to take place. In your name we pray, Lord. Amen. Joel 2.27, chapter 2, verses 27 and 28. And ye shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God and none else. And my people shall never be ashamed. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 21. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea, and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken to my words. For these are not drunken, as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day, about nine a.m. in the morning. But this is which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will shew you wonders in heaven above, and in the signs of the earth, 
beneath blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before that great and notable day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The prophet Joel at the beginning of the book of Joel is warning people that, uh, of, of Judah that a great plague of locusts is on the way. Joel tells them that they should interpret this as a sign that the judgment of, Lord, of the Lord is intimate. He tells them that this will be a great and very terrible Verses two, chapter 2, verse 11. It will consume the pagan nations, but also unfaithful Judah, Judea, unless the people repent and turn from their wicked ways. Now, by my uneducated guess, since I have not taken an Old Testament survey class, this is about the eighth time a prophet has come to Judea and said, Repent, for the time is at hand. The two kingdoms had a very hard time keeping the Mosaic Covenant. Even at this point in biblical history, if I'm correct, it's only been a hundred years since the Assyrians sacked the northern kingdom of Israel. The Israelites started to worship other gods. They had focused on other things and disregarded the laws and instructions of Yahweh. They forgot him as their first love and displeased him by not doing his will and not aligning to his plan. They did not go after God's heart. Instead, they went after other things or created things whom they pleased to glorify. God does not allow any rival. Now, these are my thoughts. Um, we see that many times, if you look back in the Old Testament, these many times that the prophets came and said, repent for the time is at hand. This is what was going on. You have sexual sins, even tra- trafficking, selling their own sons and daughters, as we see in Joel 3.3. 3. This means also that they were committing spiritual adultery, going after other gods, also drunkenness, chapter 1, verse 5, which implies spiritual drunkenness or sleep. It seems the priests were at least part of the cause, chapter 1, verse 9, Chapter 1, verse 13, and 2.17, which is consistent with the statements of other prophets, if you read the book of Joel. But it seems the average citizen was also complicit in all this, the husbandmen, the wine dressers, the farmers, etc., which meant that the people overall did not have a heart after the Lord, as implied in chapter 2, verses 12 and 14. The Lord was looking for them to repent with all their heart. This, of course, is the basic and most direct answer to the question. The heart of God's people had moved away from the Lord. All other points are mentioned as a result of this basic problem. All through the prophets, the major and the minor prophets, God clearly describes the reason for both captivities. He laments that astonishingly, Even though he sent prophet after prophet to warn them, his people keep sending more and more, worse and worse as the decades and centuries go by. Finally, he said Jerusalem was even worse than Sodom. And that's why he had to destroy it and exile his people. 
Look at God's list of Sodom's progressively increasing sins in Ezekiel 16. This gives you an idea of what Jerusalem did, but only worse. We can also see the parallels of how the West, including the U.S., has moved progressively from pride to multiple and various abominations. God is declaring the judgment against, against Judah for their sins. He uses Joel to explain to the people that he will send a large and extremely powerful army to overtake the land and rule, rule over the people. And we know that this army is uh, Nebuchadnezzar's the second army of the Babylonian Empire. Their sins are great, and God decides that he must send a severe judgment to deal with a rebellion and sin. Joel describes in great detail about the foreign army that is going to that God is going to use to punish Judea. This army will be ferocious, strong, swift, and cruel. No man, beast, town, or kingdom will stand against it once it attacks. There won't be anything left that will keep this army from advancing to destroy places that God has chosen to wipe out. The nation of Judea, Judah, Judea, was terrified of this judgment. Joel tells the people that God will drive the advancing army away if they repent and do right by him. He tells them that they will get back the blessings that they have lost. God also planned on making them prosper once again if only they would turn from their sins and worship him once more. It is simple as that. All they have to do is turn back to God and return to their first love. Well, let's compare this to another empire, the British Empire. Starting in the 19th century, the British Empire was the dominating force of the world. During the golden age of the empire, around the reign of Queen Victoria, missionaries were sent throughout the entire realm. At one point, the sun never sat on the British Empire. The gospel was spread far and wide by great missionaries like David Livingstone, and a growing evangelical faction had led to revival with, we with leaders like William Wilberforce, who helped end slavery. As a part of the regular census in 1851, the government uh, conducted a census in England and Wales of attendance at religious services on a particular Sunday, March 30, 1851. Reports were collected from the local ministers who reported the attendance at the services on that particular Sunday. The effect of individuals attending multiple services morning, eve, afternoon, and evening could not be fully accounted for, but the estimated number of, eventual, of individuals attending a service at some point in the day was over 7 million people. The number of individuals attending morning services was just over 4 million, and the total number of attendees, including the duplicates, was 10, almost 11 million. The total population at that time was 17.9 million. But what happened? Well, by the start of the 1960s, modernism and secular humanism had gotten a hold of Great Britain, and the decline in morality began. In 2001, 71% of Great Britain said they were Christians. In 2011, that number was 59%. No religion nearly doubled 
in that time frame to 24%, and I mean by no religion, no professing religion or atheism. Today, that second highest religion professed in Great Britain is Islam. All these statistics that I'm telling you I've gotten from Wikipedia, so take them take it for the grain of salt that it's worth. But Brother Louis, this isn't Great Britain, this is America. You know, God bless the USA, and, and uh, I'm proud to be an American, or at least I know I'm free. Uh, okay. Well, the most popular religion in the United States is Christianity, comprising the majority of the population, 73.7% of the adults in 2016. According to the Association of Statisticians of the American Religious Bodies newsletter, published in March 2017, based on data from 2010, Christians were the largest religious population in all 3,143 counties in the country. Roughly 48.9% of Americans are Protestant, 23% are Catholics. Christianity was introduced during the period of European colonialization. The European, the Europeans spread the gospel more than any other culture did and has since. Of that 48.9% in 2007, members of the evangelical churches comprised 26% of the American population, while another 18% belonged to mainline Protestant churches and 7% belonged to historically black churches. The largest religion in America, Christianity, has proportionately diminished since 1990. While the absolute number of Christians rose from 1990 to 2008, the percentage of Christians dropped from 86 to 76%. In a nationwide interview by telephone of all of uh, 1,002 adults conducted by the Barna Group, found that 70% of American adults believe that God is the all-powerful, all-knowing creator of the universe who still rules it today. And that 9% of all American adults and 0.5% of young adults hold to what the survey defined as a biblical worldview. Now, the total number of people professing Christianity, that number today, as of 2019, so the last known number, is 65%. To put it in a historical perspective, in 1948, which was the first Gallup survey to ask about religion, that number was 91%. Something happened in the 60s that caused a decline. That was the beginning of the war of on the family and the war on American culture. The left the elite, liberal elite, the ivory tower elite, the subversive groups of people who control the news in Hollywood decided that we don't need the nuclear family. We don't need Christian culture. We don't need the culture that has brought the most economic progression, the most 
uh, cultural progression the most of, of Christianity ever. We don't need them anymore. So today we see the effects of that war that is raging for the soul of America. Now that I, w- I will admit, Satan has won a few battles. We have to say that, looking at what's been going on today and what's been going on for the past few years. But I know we will win in the end. How do I know? Well, I read the back of the book, the Bible. And in Revelation it tells us we win. How do we get to that point? We stand up and start fighting back. We get down on our knees and we fervently pray for our home, our town, our state, and our nation. We boldly approach the throne of grace and ask that the Holy Spirit descend down and light the fire of revival in our hearts, in our churches, and in our nation. As it says in James 5, chapter 5, 14 through 16, Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Confess your faults one to another, and pray for one another. How many are we doing that today? Pray for one another that ye may be healed. And here's the key. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. That phrase, the effectual, fervent prayer, has stuck with me since childhood. It is something that I strive for in my own life, and I hope and pray that it is something that we can all strive for. Now, do I hit that mark all the time? No. I'm human. But every day I can wake up knowing that this is the day that the Lord hath made, so let us rejoice and be glad in it. I can work toward that fervent prayer life. I can work for that boldness and zeal to share what is on my heart and take up my sword and shield and go into battle. We can become as fervent as the early church in Acts 2. If we just take the time to pray and study the word of God, if we take the time to work the fields that Christ is talking about. If we work to take that first step of faith and step into the water and know that Christ is there beside us as we build up the army of God. We are commanded to proclaim the word. To be honest, it's very simple. It's so simple as it says in Acts 2.21, And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Acts 16.31 This is the uh, guard who is about to draw his sword and and kill himself when the earthquake struck the prison that Paul was in. And they said, and he asked, "What what must I do to be saved? And they said, Acts 16, 31, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved in thy house. Romans 10, 13, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I could go on, but it's just that simple. All we have to do as a nation is to turn back to God. He is waiting to send down that spirit of revival, that, that, that spirit of 
a boldness that and, and a, a fervent just fire that we had once as a nation but he is waiting for us to ask for it and he is waiting for us to start acting like the strong christians that we are we need to be that shining light on top of the hill that light in the darkness that salt of the earth that we are supposed to be all it takes is for us to start let us pray Father, I pray that you can take this message, Lord, and send it out to those who need it, Lord, that you just, just throughout the world that this message can go and throughout our nation that people can see and all we have to do is just turn back to you, Lord. We thank you for all that you've done in our lives, Lord, and we thank you for the many blessings that you have bestowed upon our nation. And we ask now, Lord, that you... Help us have that boldness to take back our country, Lord. We pray that you do that you will send that spirit of revival to our nation. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you once again for taking the time to listen to my sermon. And if you like what you see and what you've heard, please subscribe to our channel. Please check out our website. Uh, you can learn more about St. Andrew's Ministries. Uh, it's a uh, preaching ministry that I've started. Um, we're looking to maybe expand one day to broadcast, uh, expand to maybe uh, start a house church in the area where I'm at. But mostly it's me going out and preaching the word of the Lord uh, to, in churches if they if they would invite me I'd be more than happy to come out and preach on a Sunday or on a Sunday evening you can find more information at our website standrewsministries.org thank you very much and this is Brother Louis saying have a great and wonderful day <laughs>